You should have received a reading as you came in. Has everyone got Psalm 25 on a piece of paper? If not, wave a hand and someone at the back will bring you one. I thought it would be good to be able to, uh, to look at it together today. I wasn't quite sure what to do after 29 weeks on the book of Revelation, so I thought we'd go back to the Psalms, which is always a, a good thing. I think I've told you before about an incident that took place when I was studying at Theological College. Uh, it's not an incident of which I am particularly proud, but one of the courses that we did one year was a course in spirituality. We had a, an entire term on spirituality, and one of the course requirements was to read through the book of Psalms three times during the term. And you know what things are like. Things build up and you think, well, I'll get to it, I'll get to it, I'll get to it. And I remember it was the night before we had to sign a declaration saying we'd done all the coursework, including reading through the book of Psalms three times. And I remember sat there the night before madly reading Psalm 1 three times. Uh, it wasn't quite as bad as that, but it was pretty bad reading through the book of Psalms three times the night before. After that experience, I kind of left the Psalms for a while, um, but moving on from being a 19-year-old student to being a little bit more mature, the Psalms have become so meaningful to me. The book of Psalms is, is a very unique book because although it forms part of our Bible and is therefore God's word to us, it's also in very real terms man, men and women's words to God in prayer as these folk come and they pour out their hearts to God. It's both God's words to us and our word to him. And so in fact, the Psalms become models, examples to us as, how, as to how we can pray. And if you read through the book of Psalms a number of times, like three times in one evening, you might find some things there that surprise you. Because if these are model prayers for us, there are some things in the book of Psalms that we thought we might not be able to pray. And we'll see some of those surprises this morning. So if you have your piece of paper with you, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 25. The psalmist prays, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. In you I trust, O my God. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one whose hope is in you will ever be put to shame, but they will be put to shame who are treacherous without excuse. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Saviour, and my hope is in you all day long. Remember, O Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for you are good, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore he instructs sinners in his ways. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful for those who keep the demands of his covenant. For the sake of your name, O Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. Who then is the man who fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way chosen for him. He will spend his days in prosperity and his descendants will inherit the land. 
The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. My eyes are ever on the Lord, for only he will release my feet from the snare. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart have multiplied. Free me from my anguish. Look upon my affliction and my distress and take away all my sins. See how my enemies have increased and how fiercely they hate me. Guard my life and rescue me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness protect me, because my hope is in you. Redeem Israel, O God, from all their troubles. Amen. <laughs> we don't always know a lot about the individual Psalms in the book of Psalms, who wrote them or why they were written and under what circumstances they were written. And the same is true of the Psalm that we've just looked at. The, the title of Psalm 25 simply says, Of David, and that might mean that David was the author. It could mean that the psalm is dedicated to David or was written in a style like David's or even that the writer has pinched one of David's tunes. We're not 100% sure of what that little title of David means. And we don't know the exact situation that this prayer was written into either. And that's actually quite a blessing because it means that this psalm speaks into our circumstances wherever we find ourselves today. We do know that the psalmist is in some kind of trouble. As he says in verse 16, I'm lonely and afflicted. And the troubles of my heart have multiplied. Free me from my anguish. And then one of the things that looms large in the life of the psalmist is his enemies. He mentions them right at the beginning of the psalm in verse 2. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. And he mentions his enemies right at the end of the psalm too, verse 19. See how my enemies have increased and how fiercely they hate me. I heard about a pastor who went to visit at a retirement home and he saw an elderly man sat in the lounge and during their conversation the pastor asked the man, how old are you? And the old man replied, I'm 89 in February and I don't have an enemy in the world. And the pastor was impressed and he said, that's great. It's really wonderful that you don't have any enemies. This elderly gentleman replied, well, I've had enemies. It's just I've outlived them all. <laughs> I don't know if we have enemies in the same way in which David had enemies, literal armies that were trying to wipe him out. I guess that sometimes we might feel a little bit like that in our lives. Sometimes we face opposition from people who don't share our faith. They're antagonistic towards the Lord Jesus Christ and they take it out on us. Sometimes we have difficult relationships at work or in our families. We have those who don't understand us, who perhaps gossip about us, tell lies about us, seek to undermine us. It's also important to remember that as Christians, we do have an ultimate enemy who seeks to lie and steal and kill and to destroy. And so when we face temptation, we can pray, verse 2, do not let my enemy triumph over me. 
or as Jesus taught us to pray, deliver us from the evil one. But let me maybe just say something about enemies in the book of Psalms, because if you read through the book, you'll see often that the psalmist cries out to God about his enemies. In fact, Psalm 25 is quite restrained when it comes to the topic of enemies. If you go to Psalm chapter 3, for example, you'll see that the psalmist prays, strike all my enemies on the jaw, break the teeth of the wicked, which which seems a little bit unchristian, doesn't it? (laughs) Is that really in the Bible? Uh, What about what Jesus said about turning the other cheek? Well, notice a couple of things here. Uh, The psalmist asks God to strike his enemies. It's not something that he does himself. There is also no guarantee that God is going to do what the psalmist asks him to do. It's just what the psalmist feels at that moment. The psalmist tells God exactly how he feels and how he would like to see God act. And that, in fact, leaves the situation in God's hands. I don't know if you've ever felt anger like this in your own life, but I know that sometimes when I listen to a news story or watch something on television, part of this anger rises within me, and I sometimes want to pray, Lord, strike that person, do something about this. Sometimes even within my own life, I I plan and imagine subtle ways of getting even with my enemies by doing something or saying something or not doing something or not saying something that will show them up. And so asking God to do something about my enemies is a way of entrusting the situation into his hands, he who judges justly. But notice, too, then, that the Psalms allow us to bring our anger to God. We don't have to sanitize our prayers and tell God what we think God wants us to hear. We can be honest and open with a God who knows everything already anyway. We can bring all of our emotions before God, even the ones that we're not particularly proud of. That was just a bit of a detour. (laughs) But just to point out again then, the psalmist is in a difficult situation. He's lonely, he's afflicted, his heart is troubled, he faces people who want to destroy him. And yet this very difficulty actually produces some good fruit in this man's life. Isn't that often the case? It's not always in the good times that we grow in our Christian walk. Sometimes it's in those very difficulties Often in the darkest and most difficult times, God produces good fruit in us. And I think there are four things in this psalm that we see are produced in this man's life. And the first good thing is trust. Psalmist begins this psalm by saying, To you, Lord, I lift up my soul. In you I trust, O my God. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one whose hope is in you will ever be put to shame. So trust in the character of God and hope. Not hope that the situation will work out in exactly the way I want it to work out, but hope in God that he will act in ways that are loving and good, even if it doesn't at first seem that way. Verse 15 also expresses this deep trust. My eyes are ever on the Lord, for only he will release my feet from the snare. 
The psalmist recognizes that there is no one else that he can go to. There is no one else who has the power and the ability to rescue him. It reminds me of the words of Peter to Jesus in John chapter 6. Lord, to whom else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Psalm 25 is also what we know as an an acrostic psalm. Uh, Each letter of the next verse begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, So one writer describes this psalm as an alphabet of trust. The psalm covers everything from Aleph to Tav, or in English from A to Z. It's a way of saying that everything, all of life, from A to Z, can be brought before God. In Psalm 6, the psalmist says, Remember, O Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. In other words, God's mercy and love are always there. It's part of his eternal character. In Exodus chapter 34, after Moses has asked to see God and being refused, uh, we read how God passes in front of Moses and declares his name to Moses, his character, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. He maintains love to thousands and forgives wickedness, rebellion and sin. God's love and mercy are of old and they are utterly dependable because God doesn't change. I'm sure you've got people in your lives that are changeable. Uh, You walk into their office and you never know, are they going to be in a good mood or are they going to be in a bad mood? And you kind of tiptoe in, not knowing. The Bible tells us that God doesn't change like shifting shadows. Just as he was when this psalm was written over 2,000 years ago, he is today. And so we can come to God as the psalmist did with complete confidence because we know that God won't have a bad day or be upset with us. The second good thing that this time of difficulty produces in this man's life is self-examination and repentance. So we saw a few moments ago that the psalmist is deeply troubled by his enemies who are out to get him. And at the beginning of the psalm, he reminds himself that the wicked do not prosper. Verse 3, no one whose hope is in you will ever be put to shame, but they will be put to shame who are treacherous without excuse. So yes, we we may experience sadness and sorrow and shame in this world, but not ultimately. And the psalmist reminds himself that, as Psalm 1 puts it, the way of the wicked will perish. Wicked people don't prosper. But then it's almost as if the psalmist has to pause, because he recognizes that sometimes wickedness resides in him. It's a similar pattern to what we have in Psalm 139. Uh, There again, the psalmist speaks out against the wicked in the strongest of terms. He cries out, if only you would slay the wicked. But then he pauses and reflects, oh boy, if God were to slay the wicked, then I would get wiped out too. And so he goes on, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. 
In this difficult situation, the psalmist becomes aware of his own sinfulness. He recognizes that sometimes he has been the cause of pain to others. He has sometimes been an enemy to others. And sometimes that thought can help us with our enemies. We recognize that sometimes we cause pain. And we ask that even in the present situation, we may act justly and rightly in our dealings with our enemies. So within this difficult situation, the psalmist becomes aware of his own sin. Not that his sin has caused his difficulties necessarily, but it just brings to him a fresh awareness, self-awareness. So in verse 7, he says, Remember not the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. He's recalling some of the things that he did as a hot-headed young person. He's concerned about those things. In verse 11, he returns to his present sin, and he says, For the sake of your name, O Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. And then in verse 18, he says, Look upon my affliction and my distress, and take away all my sin. This man is really troubled by the sin in his life. And I wonder this morning if we're troubled by our sin in the same way. Does our sinfulness concern us at all? Now, I need to be careful here because I'm speaking to two groups of people. There are some Christians who are too troubled by their sin. All they can think about is how terrible they are and how sinful they are. And they keep on asking God's forgiveness for the same sin over and over again. And if you're in that position, then look again at verses 6 and 7. Remember, O Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. According to your love, remember me, for you are good, O Lord. The psalmist asks God for forgiveness, not on the basis on anything that he has done, but because God is loving and merciful, according to your love. And this morning, we're in a much better position than the psalmist ever was. We know far more about God's love than this man did. The psalmist could only rely on God's acts of goodness in the past. He could only rely on the sacrifices that the people made day by day at the temple. But we know how much it costs God in blood and death to forgive our sin. We look at Jesus' perfect sacrifice for our sin on our behalf on the cross. And we can remind ourselves, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And this morning, if you're overly worried about your sin and you keep on feeling terrible, even though you've confessed, you need to hear Jesus' words to the woman who was caught in adultery. I don't condemn you either. Go now and leave your life of sin. On the other hand, though, there are some Christians who aren't troubled enough by their sin. Uh, there are things in their lives that they continue to do that have almost become like the furniture of their lives, become so much a part of our lives that we don't see it anymore. Uh, it's a bit like that broken gate that you've been promising to fix for years or that ceiling that is peeling and your wife has been asking you for months to repaint it. When a visitor comes into the house, that's the first thing that they see, but you just can't see it anymore because it's become such a part of your life. Wrong ways of thinking, wrong ways of acting, wrong ways of believing. And eventually we get so used to them and we think, well, that's just the way that my life is. But we can't settle for that. 
We can't ignore the things in our lives that displease God. None of us are going to be perfect in this life, but we should be moving in the direction of wanting to please God and dealing with our stuff. So there's a lovely picture in Scripture that helps us to balance out the tension between an over-concern with sin and an under-concern with sin. Do you remember how at the Last Supper, the Lord Jesus washes the disciples' feet and he comes to Peter who says, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus says, well, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. To which Peter goes to the other extreme and says, then Lord, not just my feet and my hands, wash my head and my body as well. And Jesus replies, a person who's had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean and you are clean. When we first become Christians, it's like having a bath as all of our sins are washed away. But thereafter, we do need to keep on having our feet washed, asking God's forgiveness at the end of each day for the ways in which we've sinned against him through what we've said and thought and done and in what we've left undone. And then the third good thing that this time of difficulty produces in the psalmist is a desire for God's guidance. And there's an interesting link between repentance and guidance. The psalmist recognizes that, yes, he can ask God to forgive him, but unless God guides him, the future is just going to be a repeat of the past. He's going to make the same mistakes again. True repentance doesn't just mean asking for forgiveness. It means a change of direction. And the psalmist asks for that in verses 4 and 5. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God my Savior and my hope is in you all day long. The psalmist doesn't ask for guidance in a particular situation. He's not being asked about guidance for a new job or which missionary society to join. He's, he's asking that God would guide him into obeying his word. And I find verse 8 so encouraging. The psalmist says, Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in his ways. It's not just good people who get guided, it's sinners. God is especially concerned for those who don't feel good enough, who feel that they don't match up. Again in verse 9, he guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. Not the proudly self-sufficient, but those who are aware of their sinfulness and their need for God's guidance. And again, how much of a desire to follow God's word and law resides within me when I've got to make a decision, even in a situation, about a telephone call or a conversation? How often am I asking myself, what does God's word say about this? Or how often am I just going on my gut reaction or on what other people would do? The psalmist asks that God would guide him in his way, give him the ability to obey. Because as he affirms in verse 10, all the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful for those who keep the demands of his covenant. God's commands are there for our good, to give us life and hope and a future. There are many paths that we could choose to take in this life, but if we choose God's path, we know that we will be safe and secure because all of his ways are loving and faithful. But if you turn back in your Bibles a couple of pages, there you read that famous psalm, Psalm 23. 
And what do we read there about God's paths? We read that he guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And the fourth good thing that this time of difficulty produces in the psalmist might not actually sound like a good thing at first, but it's fear. Have a look at verse 12. Who then is the man that fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way chosen for him. What what does it mean to fear the Lord? Well, again, the Bible gives us a wonderful picture in Exodus chapter 20. Do you remember that God is giving the Israelites the Ten Commandments? And we read that the people are terrified and say to Moses, you speak to us, don't let God speak to us, otherwise we'll all die. And Moses says to them, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. That lovely contrast. Don't be afraid, but do fear. Just that sense of awe, respect, feeling the heaviness of God, his glory, his power as our, as our creator. And the fear of the Lord is an extremely good thing. Verse 14 is an incredible verse tucked away in this little psalm. The NIV translates the verse as the Lord confides in those who fear him. But the verse actually has a stronger meaning than that. The Revised Standard Version translates the verse like this. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. Fear of God, reverence for him, setting him apart as Lord in our hearts results, in fact, in the most intimate relationship with him. And this is the reason that we obey God and spend time with him, not because we want to keep on his good side, not because we don't want to feel guilty, but because we long for a friendship with him. I wonder if we've ever thought about the fact that we can be God's friends, uh, if we've ever realized that God wants to be our friend, would you, put, would you put God on your list of friends? There are only a couple of people in the Old Testament who God called his friends. Uh, God refers to Abraham as my friend. And the book of Exodus describes how God spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. But the Bible tells us here that we too can become God's friends when we do what he commands. It shows that we love him. Jesus said the same thing to his disciples in the upper room just before he was going to be crucified. In John chapter 15, Jesus says to his disciples and to us, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. Notice then that obedience to God's word is not motivated by a desire to keep out of trouble. It's motivated by a desire to be God's friend. I wonder what some of our dreams and hopes and ambitions for life are. Uh, A new job, a new university course, a new car, a new relationship. How about having this as one of our desires and priorities? to become one of God's friends. There's much more that we could look at in the psalm, and I hope that you'll take it away and take out a pen and a couple of colored pens and color it in and scribble on it during the week. 
But this psalm simply reminds us that God is always at work in our lives, even in the darkness. We can ask God that the circumstances of our lives would produce good fruit in our lives, that it would produce a greater trust and dependence upon God, our only Savior, that it would produce self-examination and repentance, that it would produce a, a desire for God to lead us in paths of righteousness, right ways of acting and thinking, and that it would produce a holy reverence and fear of God that leads to a deep friendship, intimacy with God, who desperately loves us and cares for us. And we don't do any of this alone either. The psalm ends with a simple request in verse 22. Redeem Israel, O God, from all their troubles. We're part of a community, and what we seek for ourselves, we seek for others too, those around us. We seek to spur one another on towards faith and good deeds. So as we close, let's pray together. Um, and as we pray, let's actually pray the prayer that we've just read. Because the Psalms were never meant to be preached on. They were meant to be uh, sung and prayed. So we won't sing it, but let's, let's pray it together. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. In you I trust, O my God. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one whose hope is in you will ever be put to shame, but they will be put to shame who are treacherous without excuse. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Remember, O Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for you are good, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore he instructs sinners in his ways. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful for those who keep the demands of his covenant. For the sake of your name, O Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. Who then is the man that fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way chosen for him. He will spend his days in prosperity, and his descendants will inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. My eyes are ever on the Lord, for only he will release my feet from the snare. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart have multiplied. Free me from my anguish. Look upon my affliction and my distress and take away all my sins. See how my enemies have increased and how fiercely they hate me. Guard my life and rescue me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness protect me because my hope is in you. Redeem Israel, O God, from all their troubles. Amen. Amen.